Well, good morning once again. And once again, moms, happy Mother's Day. So great to see you this morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 7? 1 Samuel 7. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you realize that 1 Samuel 7 is the culmination of something that started in chapter 4. And what happened in chapter 4 was the Philistines came against the children of Israel in battle. And defeated them uh, were 4,000 uh, Jewish soldiers were killed. Well, the nation wasn't really walking with God at that time. So their um, answer was to take the Ark of the Covenant, which was never supposed to go into battle really, and use it as a good luck charm to give them victory over the Philistines. Well, when the Philistines heard they had brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle, they fought even harder, killed 30,000 Jewish soldiers and captured the ark. Now, let me just say this. Uh, as you read the Old Testament, you realize the Philistines were the perennial enemies of Israel. They constantly tested their faith and challenged their courage for centuries. Well, today as God's people, we don't fight against the Philistines, of course, but we do fight against an enemy that's just as tenacious. It's an enemy that constantly challenges our faith, courage, and commitment to God. And it's called the flesh. The flesh. Paul writes about it in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh wars against the Spirit, the Spirit wars against the flesh. These two are in constant opposition to each other so that we don't always do the things we want. What is the flesh? It's our fallen nature. It's that part of us we inherited from Adam that wants to do our own thing, satisfy our own desires, live basically contrary to what God says. God wants us to walk in the Spirit. God wants us to obey His Word. The flesh wants to do the opposite. The flesh is selfish. The flesh is self-focused. It's self-gratifying. It wants just to focus on itself. This is the war we're fighting once we become Christians. The Spirit moves in, and now there's a constant struggle going on inside of us. But listen, whether we're talking about Israel having victory over the Philistines back then, or Christians having victory over the flesh today, the components of victory are essentially the same. And guess what? They can be found in our passage this morning. Now, as we come to chapter 7, the background again is that the ark was captured by the Philistines. Well, God began to smite them with plagues. They began to die. Passed the ark from one city to the other. Finally, he said, let's get rid of this thing put it on a cart, hooked it to a couple of cows, sent it back toward Israel. It wound up in the town of Beth Shemesh, Jewish town, a Levitical town. Levites lived there, and uh, they knew better. But as we saw last time, they opened the Ark of the Covenant, took the mercy seat off, opened it up, were forbidden to do that. God struck 50,000, 50,070 died. And uh, they said, look, get the, the men of Kirjath-Jerim, your town's closed, take this thing out, we don't want it. And so it says in verse 1, Now the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, uh, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And so it was the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years. Listen, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Israel had good reason to lament. Their cities were in ruins. Their armies were defeated. And they had been under, the, under Philistine domination for at least 20 years, maybe longer. All because they refused to obey God, but instead chose to live lives of rebellion against Him. 
Look, centuries later, a future Jewish generation who decided they were going to live in the same rebellion that this generation chose to live in, God sent the prophet Jeremiah to them to speak to them. And in Jeremiah 2, we read, Have you not brought this on yourself? God is saying, look, look at all the calamity. Look at all the problems. Look at all the consequences that are the result of your own wickedness and backsliding. You have brought all this on yourself because you have forsaken the Lord your God. Your own wickedness will correct you. Your own backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, the writer of the Proverbs tells us. But God is saying, look, didn't I tell you when I first brought you into the land, if you would obey me, I was going to bless you. If you turned against me and disobeyed me, these curses were going to come upon you. God is saying right here in Jeremiah 2 that, look, sin has built within it certain consequences. I mean, and the idea is that the more you sin, the more you just simply reap the consequences of those actions. And finally, and God says, look, they're going to eventually correct you. They're going to eventually rebuke you. What do you mean? Well, and it doesn't work with everybody, but in general, a person keeps sinning against God, doing what God has said not to do. They keep reaping one negative consequence after another, and they pile up on their lives until finally they're broken, broken and humbled in the sight of God. That's exactly what happened to Israel. All the years of rebellion and all the consequences that they had reaped, they were under Philistine domination for at least 20 years, maybe longer. God's people really slaves to the Philistines. Their armies were wiped out. Cities were leveled. All because they were living in constant rebellion against God. Well, finally, they couldn't take it any longer. Finally, it brought them to their senses like the prodigal son slopping pigs in, the, you know, in a foreign land. You know, eventually your sin will get a hold of you. It will cause you to think, what am I doing? What is wrong with me that I'm living this way and rebelling against what God has said? All these problems, it's the result of my not walking with God anymore. And so after Israel had piled up all these consequences, eventually it broke them, and they lamented. The Hebrew word means to mourn and to weep. And they humbled themselves before God. Listen, guys, humility is the beginning of victory. Some people would say, well, no, repentance is. Humility leads to repentance. Humility is where all victory begins. Now, you don't have to be living in rebellion against God. You could be a Christian who just wants to to live for God, but you're trying to do it in your own strength. In that regard, humility becomes saying to God, I can't have victory in my own strength, Lord. I have tried, I, I, for years I've tried to have victory over this area or whatever it might be. But I'm powerless to defeat my flesh. I'm totally dependent on you, Lord. See, when you come to that point, you're humbling yourself before God. Lord, without your strength, Without your power, I will never know victory over alcohol, drugs, pornography, homosexuality, food, cigarettes, anger, etc. I need your strength. The Bible says God's ear is attentive to the cries of the humble. To those who have a contrite heart, God says, I will never turn my ear from those people. I will be ready to help them. And that's the idea. So here the nation, though, was brought to humility and repentance because they were living in sin. And they cried out to Samuel, you know, what do we do? I mean, we're God's people, and here we are in bondage to the Philistines. The nation's a wreck. 
What do we do? They lamented, wept. And Samuel basically challenged them. That's the title of this message, a challenge for victory. He challenged them in verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If, see, it was dependent on them. If you, it's up to you to do it or not. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, then he's going to deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Here Samuel gives the people of Israel the four components to victory and revival. The four components to victory and revival. Number one, return to the Lord with all your heart. All your heart. Not half-hearted, you know. Yeah, well, maybe I will. Okay, I'll do it a little bit. No, God says, with all your heart. No fooling around. No more playing games. You want to walk in victory, man? You've got you to gotta go for it. You've got to be all in. You've got to be totally serious. We're talking about repentance. Israel was lamenting. Know this. Understand this. They were lamenting and weeping before the Lord. But guys, listen, that in and of itself wasn't repentance. It's possible to regret what we have done. It's possible to weep over our sins without allowing our sorrow to lead us to repentance. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He said, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Now, he's talking about to unbelievers, okay? Godly sorrow produces true repentance and leads to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What is Paul saying? Both godly sorrow and worldly regret start off with a bad feeling. Okay? You realize you've done wrong. If it's genuine, though, and rooted in a desire to get right with God, it will lead you down a path of repentance. We'll talk about that more in a second, which is change. If you're only feeling sorry for yourself over what your sin has brought into your life, that is not going to lead you to true repentance. It's going to keep you in a state of self-pity. And that's not going to do anything. If you're an unbeliever, that won't do anything but continue you down the path to hell. But even if you're a Christian, it works the same way. If you're a Christian and you're involved in a sin, and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, which he will, obviously, if you're a child of God, he doesn't want you living in sin. If you allow the Spirit to really work, it brings it to a point of sorrow, but a sorrow that wants to do something about it, that's repentance. Repentance, you'll know if it's true repentance, not just worldly sorrow, if it brings you to a point of change. Change. I mean, look at guys. Every criminal in prison is sorry from a worldly standpoint. Sorry they got caught. Sorry they're now in prison, but not necessarily sorry for what they've done. I mean, worldly regret or remorse, same thing, is self-focused and feelings-oriented, but it's not repentance. Sometimes people think, well, I feel bad. So I must be, you know, that, isn't that make me right with God? No, because you feel bad? No. It doesn't do anything. I mean, you know, that doesn't make, that's not repentance. It's because you feel bad about what you've done. Look, true repentance consists of a threefold action. First of all, it involves awareness and understanding of our sin or wrongdoing. I acknowledge you've done something wrong. So a lot of people don't even do that. I talked to one guy who said basically he was perfect. He never did anything wrong. I said, are you serious? You've never done anything wrong in your life? No. Well, then I need to bow the knee right now to you because you must be the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Are you kidding me? You know, what do you say to a person like that? But first of all, it involves awareness and understanding of our sin and or wrongdoing. Secondly, true repentance involves our emotions. That's true. We feel bad about what we've done. That's part of it. And thirdly, it involves the appropriate actions that make for a change of lifestyle. And guys, that was essentially the path Israel was on, which means they were truly repenting. They understood they had sinned against the Lord. Number two, they were lamenting and weeping. In other words, they felt sorry for what they had done. And number three, they were willing to make the necessary changes. So the first thing Samuel says to them is return to the Lord with all your heart. That's inward repentance. But inward repentance always, if it's genuine, will lead to outward change. That's where he says number two. Then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you. Now that's outward repentance. Ashtoreth, guys, was the Canaanite goddess of fertility, also called Estarte. Estarte. She was worshipped through all kinds of unspeakable and perverted sexual practices. The fact that Samuel mentions Ashtoreths, plural, indicates the people had erected multiple statues of Ashtoreth throughout the land in what was called Ashtoreth poles. What were these? They were basically like totem poles. But all up and down them, they were carved pornographic images. And they would use these poles in what was called the groves. They would erect them all around a flat area, usually on a mountain or, a, excuse me, a hill. They called them high places because that's where these gods were worshipped. And you have to understand, they would erect all these pornographic carvings around this area. And the idea was it would uh, stir the passions of the worshippers, inflame their lusts to heighten the sexual um, satisfaction they would get as they now engage in sexual orgies in worship to Ashtoreth and her husband Baal, who was the god of rain and fertility. Look, over the years, the people of Israel had gotten more and more sexually perverse until their culture was so immersed in sexual perversion that it literally dominated and controlled them, destroying their relationship with God. You know what? We are living in an uber-sexual culture that's being driven by an endless flow of pornography and promiscuity. The result is that many people in our society have literally become the slaves of sex. They are obsessed with it. They are in bondage to it, and it's destroying their lives, their marriages, and if they're Christians, their relationship with God. What they need to do is return immediately to the Lord with all their hearts, Put away the porn. Get off Facebook where they're connecting with old flames, which is leading to new affairs, destroying marriages and families. The devil is no fool, okay? He knows when a marriage has cooled off a little bit, and marriages will go through those up and downs. He looks for the marriages that have kind of cooled a little bit. Husbands and wives are not as close as they once were. Not a lot of passion at that time in their marriage. And so he puts it in your heart. Why don't you go on Facebook and see if you can connect with the old gang? And the old gang would include some of the old flames, just to see how they're doing. But you know what he knows? He's going to get you to connect with an old flame, get you talking on Facebook, get you connecting emotionally through your writing, and then eventually it leads to a rendezvous, and then from there, who knows? We are seeing this over and over again in our society. Now, the Jewish people were worshiping more than these gods of sex. They were also worshiping Mammon, the god of money, uh, Molech, the god of pleasure. We worship these gods in America. And they were worshiping others. 
And thus Samuel's command to Israel for them to put away all, listen, all the foreign gods and asterisks from among them. You want to walk with God in closeness and victory. You can't put away some of your gods. You got to get rid of all of them. All of them. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But I like what author Warren Worsby said. He said, and I quote, this was in keeping with the first commandment, where God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Worsby said, an idol is a substitute for God. Anything that we trust and serve in place of the Lord. The Jews gave themselves to idols of wood, stone, and metal, but believers today have more subtle and attractive gods, houses, lands, wealth, automobiles, boats, positions of prominence and recognition, ambition, and even other people. Anything in our lives that takes the place of God and commands the sacrifice and devotion that belong only to him is an idol and must be cast out. Idols in the heart are far more dangerous than idols in the temple. End quote. That's right, because idols in the temple can be clearly seen. Idols in the heart, you don't always know they're there. You don't always know that you worship that thing, okay? You don't think you do, but God sees it. Listen, putting away their false gods was only the beginning of them returning to the Lord. Samuel mentions a third component to revival and victory. He said, prepare, after you do these other things, prepare your hearts for the Lord. A little ambiguous. What does that mean exactly? Prepare your hearts for the Lord. Look, preparing your heart for the Lord is very much like preparing your house for the Lord if he was going to come and live with you. you got to clean it out, basically. Clean it out. I like what Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus. It fits the idea here in 1 Samuel 7. Remember what Paul said? I'm praying for you. And among other things, I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now you read that and go, wait a minute. I thought he was writing to Christians, right? Ephesus, church at Ephesus, Christians. Don't Christians already have Jesus living in their hearts? What's he talking about? Well, it is true. He was writing to Christians there in Ephesus. It's also true that Jesus does live in the, live in the heart of all Christians the moment they put their faith in Christ uh, as Lord and Savior and become Christians. He moves inside. That's how they become Christians. So what is Paul actually saying here? The answer is found in the word dwell. The word in the Greek is a compound word made up of two words, kata, down, and oikeo, which means to inhabit a house. According to Greek a scholar Kenneth Wiest, the verb literally means to settle down and feel at home. Certainly, Jesus was already living in the hearts of the Ephesians, or else he wouldn't have called them saints in chapter 1, verse 1. That's just another word for Christian. All Christians are saints. The word in the Greek means to be set apart. So he calls them saints in verse 1 of chapter 1, indicating he was writing to Christians. And certainly, Jesus was already living in their hearts. So what was, what was Paul really praying? Well, he was really praying that they would have a deeper experience between themselves and Jesus. Okay? He was yearning for Christ to settle down and feel at home in their hearts. He was there, but Paul wanted the Lord to be able to feel at home in their hearts. There are people that might invite you over to spend a couple of days, and when you walk in, yikes. I have known people like this. I mean, I don't want to sit anywhere. I don't want to touch anything. Uh, it's that bad. Not anybody in our church. I'm just saying, I've, yeah, all right, so... You know, relax. There's nobody in our church. Uh, but, you know, really, uh, you know, uh, oh, forget it. All right. Uh, it, it, it doesn't need to be 
belabored. All right. Um, so Jesus is already in our hearts, but the idea is, does he feel welcome here? Does he feel comfortable? Uh, you know, are there things in our hearts that are not consistent with who he is? You know, dirty pictures on the walls and things that shouldn't be. And just is our hearts, is our homes of our heart filled with things that make the Lord uncomfortable? Where He doesn't feel like he wants to settle down. He doesn't feel at home. I mean, he wants a deep relationship, an ever-deepening, loving communion. But Jesus will never feel at home in our hearts until he feels welcome and comfortable in every room of our heart, which means those junk closets, and we all have them in our homes, don't we? We all have the junk closets filled with stuff that we probably should have gotten rid of a long time ago. Why we hang on to this stuff, who knows, right? But it's there. And, you know, we just kind of stuff things in there and close the door and forget about them. Well, we have areas in our hearts like that. Places where we've stuffed bitterness and anger, unforgiveness, and we just kind of lock the door. We don't really go there. But it's there, and Jesus knows it's there. And he won't feel at home as long as we're harboring these things in our hearts. It has to be cleaned up before he feels at home. I like what author William MacDonald said on the subject. He said, Jesus Christ will never feel at home in our hearts until he has full access to every room and closet that he might not be grieved by sinful words, thoughts, motives, and deeds, that he might enjoy unbroken fellowship with the believer. In effect, the apostle prays that the lordship of Christ might extend to the books we read, the work we do, the food we eat, the money we spend, the words we speak, in short, the minutest details of our lives, end quote. Guys, I've said it before, let me say it again. The problem with all too many Christians is that when they invite Jesus into their hearts to live, they lock him in a back bedroom somewhere and only bring him out when they need his help. Why do they do that? Well, they make most of their lives off limits to him because they really don't want him meddling with their thought lives, with who they hang with, how they spend their money, how they spend their time. You know, if you're going to invite Jesus to come into your heart to take charge of your life, you have to give him your life. You can't relegate him to a small part of your life where you do the rest, take the rest of your life and do what you want to do. That's the problem with a lot of Christians. They have kind of stuck Jesus in a corner. They said, well, you can be Lord in this area here, but not over this whole area over here. And as the old saying goes, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Something to think about. So they're lamenting and weeping. Oh, what can we do? You know, we're, this, everything is a mess. And Samuel says, look, you want to come to a place of blessing and victory again? First of all, return to the Lord with all your heart. Number two, put away the foreign gods from your life. Number three, prepare your heart for the Lord. And number four, serve only the Lord. Serve only the Lord. Now, a lot of Christians think because I'm a Christian, I do serve only the Lord. Not necessarily. Jesus said to a group of disciples, I'm not saying they were all really disciples or all saved, but they all followed him. Some of them might have been true disciples. But he said to them at one point in Luke 6, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now he's talking to followers of his. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? The Greek word for Lord there is the word kurios. And it means one who has power, ownership, absolute right to command. 
That word is used 747 times in the New Testament and is synonymous with another word, master. And the idea is that Jesus is to be our only Lord and master as Christians. The corresponding word to kurios is doulos. Doulos. And one of the big reasons that Christians today don't get it when it comes to a proper understanding of their relationship to Jesus is because they don't have a proper understanding of the word doulos. Doulos only means one thing in Greek. Slave. Slave. It is always meant slave. It only means slave in the New Testament. I mean, there are six or seven words in the Greek for servant, which is different from the concept of doulos or slave. Listen, a servant is someone who works for another. A slave is someone who is owned by another. A servant is the employee of another. A slave is the property of another. The New Testament identifies Christians as douloi, slaves, 150 times. Pretty important concept. A slave in New Testament times was bought and owned. He had no legal rights and could not refuse any of his master's commands. He was totally dependent on his master for protection and provision, and he was rewarded or punished as pleased his master. But listen to me. Slavery is offensive to us. We don't like it. We associate it with evil. And therefore, the translators of the New Testament sought to soften doulos, and they translated almost every translation of the New Testament. They softened the word doulos by translating it servant or even bondservant instead of slave. It all went back to the Geneva Bible of 1560. The translators thought the word slave carried too much of a negative connotation, too much of a stigma associated with that word. So they decided to soften it with the word servant or bondservant. And so Christians for five and a half centuries have been cheated out of a proper understanding of our true relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the word bondservant doesn't even appear in the Greek. But if you tell me the New Testament says that I am a slave of a master who owns me and whose commands I have no choice but to obey, now I start to get it. All slaves were servants, but not all servants were slaves. I mean, if a man owned a slave, that slave served him. That's true. But he could hire somebody to be a servant. You didn't own a servant. You hired them. They were an employee. And if you tell me I'm a servant of Jesus... In my mind now, because we live in America, of course, we're going to think as Americans. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, I'm an employee of, I work for Jesus. I even hear Christians talk like that, okay? I work for the Lord. Okay, well, that's true, but why do you work for the Lord? Are you employed by him or do you, does he own you? But if you tell me I'm a servant of Christ, then I start thinking that I'm an employee. An employee has negotiating power. An employee doesn't have to obey everything the boss says. They can quit and find another job. Although I don't know who you'd find other than Jesus, right? But it just gives, it makes me think I'm in a position where I can negotiate, where I can even say, not so, Lord. Peter tried to say that, not so, Lord. And what did Jesus basically say to him? Peter, you can't say no to your Lord. Your Lord's your master. He owns you. When, you're, when your Lord tells you to do something, all you can say is, yes, Lord, your servant hears and obeys. Again, tell me I'm, an, I'm a servant of Christ. I, I think I'm an employee. That's a huge difference from being a slave who has no rights, no power, or will of his own or her own. And guys, if we see ourselves as servants 
to Christ as servants to a boss, it completely messes up and confuses Jesus' statement when he said, no man can serve two what? Masters. If I hear that nobody can serve two bosses, that doesn't make sense. Because a lot of you work in jobs where you have multiple bosses. Or some of you have two jobs where you have two bosses. And so Christians are a little confused. Well, I don't understand that. It's because you don't understand what Jesus is really saying. He is saying not that nobody can serve two bosses. He's saying nobody can serve two masters. Why? Because you can only be owned by one person at a time. And Jesus Christ owns us. When we gave our hearts to him, we relinquished control of our lives. We gave up our independence, all autonomy, and we no longer call the shots. It's now it's the only thing we can say, is, Lord, what do you, will you have your servant do? That's all we can say. He's my master. He's my Lord. Now, guys, that, that in and of itself is enough to bring us to victory in our Christian lives. That I don't call the shots anymore. Jesus is in control. Whatever he says goes. If I really believed that and I followed that, that in itself would give me victory. Because think about it. If we only did what Jesus commanded, if we only went where he, lead, where he led, if we only filled our minds with his word and busied ourselves with his work, guess what? We wouldn't have time to be in bondage to sin. We'd be victorious. So Samuel challenges them in verse 3. And God bless them to their credit. They picked up the challenge and they obeyed. Verse 4. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. Now in that culture, the pouring of water on the ground was a libation. Uh, it was an arid climate, desert area. Water was precious. Water equaled life. So when you took water and you poured it out in the ground to the Lord, it was saying, Lord, I pour my life out to you. I'm all, it, was a, it was a sign of repentance. It was a sign of getting serious and so on. All right? So they poured water out before the Lord, and they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. He was a judge. He was the last judge before the monarchy came in. And so he was a leader in that regard. He judged them. But Samuel calls for a national day of prayer, fasting, and confession. Guys, this is very powerful. This is very powerful as a nation. We just had our national day of prayer. We need to have more of those throughout the year. Where we come together as a nation in various locations and we fast and we pray and we ask God to forgive us. We pour our hearts out in true repentance and contrition. What did God say in 2 Chronicles 7.14? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face and pray, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayer from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. Israel was doing that. And it also works, by the way, on a personal level. Because if you want victory over your sin, I'll tell you what, it starts with humility, and then it starts with, with prayer and often fasting. If you're really in bondage to something, you fast. And you pray, and you confess your sins. And again, God will say, look, that's what I, I will never turn my ear away from a heart that is humble, contrite, and truly wants to change from the way they're living. I will never turn my ear from you. I will be there to help, to give you the grace. But know this, guys, listen. When you seek to get serious about God, remember what James says? You get serious about God and draw close to God, he'll get serious about you and draw close to you. But when you get serious about holy living and victory in your own life as a Christian, guess what? The flesh will not go quietly into the night. It will rise up to try to keep you under its control, just like the Philistines did here in our 
text, verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a, as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before the Lord. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Now listen. Twenty years earlier when the nation was backslidden, they weren't walking with God. They tried to fight the Philistines in their own strength and the result was they were badly defeated. But now 20 years later, the nation has repented and returned to God. They're not looking to fight the Philistines any longer in their own strength. No gimmicks, no bringing the ark in to make it like a rabbit's foot or a good luck charm. Now it's like, Samuel, you cry out, you're our leader. Cry out to the Lord for us because we need him to give us the victory. Whole different mindset, right? And notice the this, this significance. Excuse me, I want you to notice something significant. God gave them victory. But listen. He gives them victory in the very place where 20 years earlier they had experienced defeat. Chapter 5, verse 1. Same place. Same place. In other words, God made Israel face an old enemy on the same battlefield. But whereas in the past they had, it had been a place of defeat, now he would turn the same battlefield into a place of victory. And guys... This is how God gives us victory over the flesh, our old perennial enemy. He does so at the very place we have experienced defeat. What am I saying? Well, too many Christians that have been defeated over and over again by the same old sins often just wind up conceding that area of their life to the flesh with the mindset, well, nobody's perfect, okay? I, I've tried to have victory over this or that. I can't. So I'm just going to concede that area to my flesh and move on to fight other battles. But remember what God said to the children of Israel when he first led them into the promised land? He said, you have to drive out all the enemy. You can't leave any of them there. Because if you leave any of the enemy, that's going to be a beachhead from which the enemy will then retake territory that you've conquered. If you leave the enemy there, it's going to be your downfall. God says it will be a, they will be a constant source of pain, defeat, humiliation, and will wind up destroying completely your relationship with me, just like the flesh. Just like the flesh. God doesn't want us to accept defeat in any area of our lives and allow old enemies like drugs, porn, anger, worry, fear, alcohol, and other things to continue to control and dominate our lives because God knows. If you're not serious, if you sidestep, that's the battlefield you've never had victory on. You sidestep and go to some other battlefield, fight some other area of your flesh. But you know what? God says, no, 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 you, no, no, come back here. Here's where we have to fight the battle now. I don't want you to fight any other battle. This is the one we have to fight right now. And until you trust me, not fight this thing in your own strength, as Israel tried to do 20 years earlier, but God says, look, when you fight this enemy in my strength, you're relying on my power, I will give you victory. Because until you have victory in this area, 
it doesn't matter where else you have victory. It's going to always be a beachhead from which the devil will rise up and take back the territory you've conquered for the Lord. Always. And after God gave them victory over the Philistines, we read in verse 12 that then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means stone of help. But listen, it wasn't the stone that gave them victory. The stone was a memorial to the God of Israel who had given them victory. In fact, Ebenezer could be translated the stone of the help, capital H, or the helper is a stone. The helper is a stone. Turn to Genesis 49. Genesis 49 verse 24 really, I think, goes right along with that. Jacob is prophesying over his sons. And he tells them at one point, verse 24, but his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hand were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Who's the stone? Who's the Ebenezer stone in our lives? It's our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who strengthens our hands for the battle? The Lord does. Imagine, okay, in fact, at one point in the Psalms, he says, he takes my hand in his, and through his strength, I'm able to bend a, a bow of bronze. If I let him fight the battle for me, then his strength is going to give the victory. Jesus Christ is our stone of help. He's our victory. Paul said it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. He's talking about how Jesus lives inside of him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the conqueror. Jesus, the victor. And Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in the physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look, we're done, but let me just say this. When God gives you victory, and the only way you're going to have victory is if the Lord does it through you. You trust that he's going to give you the victory because he's going to fight the battle. The battle belongs to the Lord, right? And when God does give you victory, in an area you've never had victory, and I've heard more than one person say I was a hopeless alcoholic for many years, and then I gave my heart to Christ, and God completely delivered me. I never had a DT. I never had a withdrawal. God has given many complete victory in, an area, in areas where they've never known victory. And when he does... You mark it with an Ebenezer stone. In other words, a memorial to remind yourself. Yeah, I was hopelessly in bondage to this, but Jesus Christ gave me victory. Now I'm going to remember that for the next battle. It's going to become a testimony to others who find themselves fighting the same things I fought that God has given me victory over. Now I can be a testimony. I can tell them, look, there's hope in Jesus. I was where you were. I had the same area of bondage. I was hopelessly involved with drugs or this or that. And I gave Jesus control. I asked him to fight the battle for me, and he gave the victory to me. It was him. These uh, places of remembrance are very important. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, Why is this important to do? Because sometimes we think, oh, no, things will never work out. My marriage is on the rocks. My finances are down the drain. Everything looks grim. What we need in times like this is an Ebenezer stone. That reminds us that God has never failed us. And what we fear doesn't have to come to pass. God will take care of it. He'll give us victory. Yes, there are definite challenges that come our way. But in those challenges, God always shows himself strong. 
He's always there to give us the victory, end quote. All right, let's finish up with verses 13 and 14. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then, and I love this, then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Maybe you're here this morning and you have been a Christian for a while. And you remember how when you first accepted the Lord, boy, did he give you victory. All those sins that you were walking in and in bondage to, it's like they just disappeared. And God gave you incredible victory. And you walked in that victory for a long time. But as of late, or maybe over the last few years, you've slowly began to drift away from the Lord. Your passion for him is not what it used to be. Your hunger for the word is not what it used to be. You're kind of, you know, hanging out with people you used to hang out with and doing some of the things you used to do. You're finding areas that had been conquered by the Holy Spirit now returning into the hands of the flesh. And you're very concerned about it. What do you do? Well, you follow Samuel's challenge. You return to the Lord with all your heart. You put away the foreign gods from your life. You prepare your heart for the Lord. Clean out your heart. Get it right with God. And you serve only the Lord. You rely on His strength. And if you do all these things, you will be victorious and recover all the territory the flesh has reconquered. You will walk in victory. Again, God says, you draw close to me, I'll draw close to you. You trust me for victory, I'll give you victory. But your responsibility is to do what we've just talked about. To get serious, get your heart right, stop messing with other gods, and serve only the Lord. Guys, I'll end with this. Some Christians think that victory in the Christian life, because they've never really experienced it, victory in the Christian life is some kind of pie-in-the-sky pipe dream. It is not. It is the birthright of every child of God because Jesus Christ lives inside of us through the Holy Spirit, and he is victorious. He's already conquered every enemy there could ever be. But we have to be serious about God. We have to be serious. You can't be half-hearted. Samuel didn't say, return to the Lord with half your heart. So many Christians who come back to the Lord with half their heart. And they never know the victory God wants to give them. They never know the blessings of what it is to walk in the Spirit. To really know God working through their lives for His glory. That's incredible. And I, I feel sorry for those Christians who are still in love with the world. Who try to serve God with one hand and the world with the other. You'll never serve two masters. You've got to choose today who you're going to serve. May God give you the grace to, serve, to choose to serve only the Lord. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for this admonition in this passage. Uh, Lord, I do believe that you put it here not just for the children of Israel back then, but for Christians today. Father, we need to get serious about you, Lord. We are living in days that are so, so rife with, com with uh, compromise and carnality. That, Lord, often your people find themselves defeated, not because the power is not there for them to have victory. It's not that you aren't wanting to give them victory. It's because, Lord, they have drifted back into the world, into compromise, rebellion, disobedience. And the consequences are defeat, emptiness, misery, pain, and heartache. Maybe you've brought them here today, Lord, and they've been mourning in their hearts, lamenting. Well, Lord, press upon them the challenge that if they do the things that you have 
spoken of in this passage. You will be there to give them victory. All the territory the enemy has retaken will be recaptured again for the glory of God. The flesh will be defeated, bad habits overcome, and we will walk in the power of the Spirit to be a light in this world. Give us grace, Lord. We need to draw close to you. Give us grace to do that. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.